and welcome to the Testing One on One podcast with myself, Rob, and my good friend Joel. How you doing, Joel? Hey, Rob. What's up, man? All good. You know, just in lockdown still, trying to find uh, time to do all those little chores and you know balance all the sort of work and life and staying at home in isolation. But it's not too bad. Not too bad actually. And I'm spending a lot of time with the boys, which is good. Um, making videos, so they love it. I love it. I get to practice, and you know, we're creating some some sort of positive memories, I suppose, of this time in lockdown. What about yourself? Um, again, lockdown as well. Can't complain. Um, going crazy with the family and the kids. Uh, learning new crafts and chores. Improving my um, making noise with the car- guitar skills. Yeah, nice. Um, Me too. Yeah, no, but I'm I'm terrible, but I'm less terrible each day. Um, and and again, I just want to make sure that, that we understand we have it easy. I don't want to complain, and I just want to once again say thanks to everyone who's doing the work for us. Absolutely, definitely. So today we are going to talk about being frustrated as a software tester. I think everybody who has ever been a tester has felt frustrated. In fact, I think probably most people have felt frustrated in their job at all times. But testers, um, why do we get frustrated? So you know what, I've definitely had my share of it, you know, that rubbish code that arrives, you know, not being treated in the same way that developers are, you know, anybody can do testing, there's all sorts of reasons why we might get frustrated. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some of those common frustrations in testing. And we're going to offer hopefully some sage advice from uh, two old timers like us. Um, about how to potentially deal with some of these things. What we'd like you to do, actually, if you're listening to this podcast, is to leave us a comment about some of the stuff that you get frustrated with, and maybe we can weave that into a future one. What do you think to that, Joel? Mm, Cool idea. Let's do it. Awesome. So first one. What's the first one then, Joel? Um, Well, I think the first one is a trivial one. Many times we feel that we are simply testing for developers who are writing very crappy code, and they do not know, want, or can't test for themselves. And that is very frustrating. Oh, definitely. I remember my first job actually as a software tester. Um, there was this guy, I won't mention his name because he does actually still follow me on LinkedIn. Um, but every single piece of code that he wrote, it, it just wouldn't even compile. I mean, it wouldn't do the basic stuff. I mean, it's just so frustrating. Then there was another guy, actually a good friend of mine um, from that first job, and everything that he wrote, you had to work really, really hard to find stuff. I mean, you had to really, really bring out all the skills that you've got. The other guy, load it, wouldn't work. And I think one of the things that we do when, we, when we're when sort of working with developers who write crappy code is we need to be really careful that we're looking for patterns. You know, one bit of crappy code doesn't mean that that developer's always going to write crappy code. Um, but I think if it's sort of two, three, four, and then every time they deliver it, then you know what, I think that's a pattern that we should be investigating. So have you ever worked with anyone who's ever written crappy code? Oh God! <laughs> I work for I, I work. I remember again. It, it, it was also my first job, and there's a pattern to that. And we'll get to it. Um, there was this guy in the in the in the first startup I worked in. He was like the senior UI front end developer back in the day. It used to be client server, so he was a client guy. Every time I would report a bug, he would call me to his desk. He would open the bug. He will start doing the bugging and fixing the bug as I was sitting next to him and I was literally doing nothing, but he wanted me to sit next to him while he was debugging and finding and fixing the bug. And I didn't understand why, but I, he asked, he was a developer and, and I do it. 
Uh, there were other developers where if you were to report a bug, he would just say, hey, you know what, thanks, great bug, and go on and fix it. And this other guy was completely annoying. Now, um, you know what? I, I think that I, after a while, in hindsight, I, I understand my issue. And if I, would, if I was to go back 20, freaking 22 years back to that job, I would tell him, hey, you know what, grow a spine. They say it in America, go ahead and grow a spine. Why are you sitting with him? Meaning there are, you're going to meet people, regardless if it's a developer, a tester, a manager, or a cook who will treat you unfairly and ask you to do stuff that you really don't need to do, you don't want to do, and there's no real reason to do it. Sometimes we need to understand that, no, we don't need to do what, what these guys are asking us to do. And, and it's, it's a fair thing to do and to say. Do you think that comes with age? Do you think, you know, I mean, I certainly have no problem with robust conversations now, but 10, 15 years ago, I probably would have struggled. Do you think that's sort of an age maturity thing? Uh, I think that maturity and experience more than age. I also okay. think that uh, people change a lot. And and there are some people who are born like that and they're uh, self-confident enough and they know their place and they will do it from, I don't know, from when they're three years old. To others, it takes us until we reach 40. But we do change, and, and it's part of the change that we need to do. But I yeah. think that as, as a tester, as a young tester, I was very much insecure about the value that I was giving to the company. So if I find myself someone giving little value versus someone who's giving a lot of value and that people, the person who asked me to do something comes from that long lot of value, then um, I would have given them more respect than they had coming, I guess. Yeah, um, so so that's that's a good point. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's say you work with someone who's got, uh, delivering you crappy code. What do you do? I mean, I remember actually being at Eurostar conference, and uh, one of the the presenters was talking about how when she found pieces of code, she would get really excited. Well, found bugs in code, she would get really excited and and really sort of uh, animated and energetic about and, and listen to this, Joel. This is important about wiping the smile off the developer's face. And I swear, when she said that, 80% of the room were like clapping and cheering and 20% got up and walked out. And she would just charge over apparently to developer and really insult them and, you know, tell them the code's rubbish and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, this is a terrible, terrible approach. So if you are working with somebody who is delivering crappy code, be really careful about raising bugs with them. Do them in a way that's kind and informative, you know, even if you are really, really frustrated. It's really important that it's sort of it's neutral. It's it's what positive, I suppose, in a sense. It's factual. It's not based on how annoyed you are with this person because that's just going to end up in, in disaster. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, and I think that it's it's a very mature and destructive way of working. I Meaning we're not competing with one another. And exactly. In a sense, I that's one of the things that I love the most about modern testing principles and, and the way that uh, I think it's Brent Jensen actually bring it up more than Alan Page when he brought the the rationale be, be, behind uh, modern testing. Our job is to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. We're not here to find bugs. We're here to release good Absolutely. products faster. So if, if you frame it that way, I'm not competing with the developer. I want the developer to right in a sense that he won't find I won't be able to find bugs because a he wrote it better b he found all the bugs beforehand so that we're saving time and releasing faster and better so if if someone wants to come to me and say hey I I I, I don't know I destroyed the code of of that guy I I would be sad not happy yeah absolutely 
But the, having said that, yes, I, I know that. And there are people who basically they have, um, I don't know, trophies about the, the big bugs they found. By the way, don't get me wrong. I get extremely excited about finding bugs. And, and it happened this week. We, we are training developers to test and we'll get to that. Um, and I was, so we were releasing this feature. It's not a big feature, but it's a little bit complex because it touches a lot of areas. And uh, a couple of developers were doing testing. One of my testers was doing testing and it was quote unquote ready to be released. And I said, hey, give me a crack of it. I, I want to take a crack of it for a second. And I literally, again, I took it. And 15 minutes later, I just told the guys, hey, I'm done. Look at this list of bugs that is new. And they just opened a conference call and said, how did you do it? And of course, I felt good because I had found three showstoppers that no one had even thought about finding. Uh, and yeah, it felt great. But it felt great not because I was able to show off. It felt great because, you know what? After First of all, I felt great because I found them. Second of all, because I used them in order to tell my developers, hey, look into why heuristics are good. I used this heuristic and I went into the heuristic of data. And using the heuristic of data, I was able to find this showstopper. So next time they're going to be able to test, they're going to use that heuristic, not because I told them to, but because they saw it in action. So in a sense, so, you're, you're sort of teaching them to test. I, of course, I've, I've been, I have an open task to do it for the last month, and I know that I will do it for the next couple of months as well. I'm making my developers better testers. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's one of the things, you know, it's not about just, you know, somebody's developing crappy code, let's throw stuff at them, let's be, you know, you know, us against them. It's about working with them, it's about collaborating, it's about, you know, understanding what testing they're doing, if they're doing any at all, and you know what, teaching them, coaching them, helping them, supporting them. But I do like, uh, I think it was Joanna Rothman that, that said, please don't ever inflict help, i.e. don't just assume that the developer's sat there and wants help or needs help. And that can be very destructive to relationship building. So it's about that building relationship, isn't it? Giving them feedback, talking to them, explaining why crappy code wastes the time, doesn't contribute towards shipping value. And then like you mentioned, Joel, teaching them, supporting them, coaching them. Yeah, yes and no. I think that that is something that only comes also with, with maturity and understanding. So you will have a better time explaining that to development management. And then development management will simply tell their guys to go ahead and test because they need to uh you need to be very mature as a person not as a developer as a human being to understand that uh you need to uh basically clean your own crap when, when you have it um and and i do it again when i look at my kids they're cooking right now because we're in the corona times and they're doing chores so they're cooking and for them it was very very cool to cook but they didn't understand they didn't grasp that after they cook they need to clean the kitchen uh, so I had to be the, the guy who says, hey, it's very simple. If you're not going to clean the kitchen, I'm not going to let you cook anymore because when I cook, I clean. And when you cook, you clean. So unless they understand it and they don't like cooking as much as they don't like cleaning as much as they like cooking, but they're doing it. So that's the approach that we need to have with developers, meaning we need to make sure they understand that unlike the 80s and 90s, they are expected to test more. And, and you think that comes from management? Oh, definitely. Yeah. If management is going to tell development, hey, your time writing code is more um, valuable than your time testing code, then they're not going to test code because they want to be where their value is. Uh, we need to make sure that they understand that their value, that testing is part of their value. So they Absolutely. need to do it as well. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So we've dealt with crappy code. 
Um, so working around the clock, you know, this is a frustration. You, you know, imagine it, particularly in the sort of uh, the more traditional models of testing towards the end of the sort of life cycle. And everything gets squeezed, everything gets pushed. And, you know, actually, even though it might not be your delay, your fault, you find yourself working epic hours to try and catch up. Has that happened to you, John? Yeah, not, not only on Waterfall, man, where are you living? I mean, it happens today as well because we have the sprint and we have been working on the sprint and the sprint was two weeks long. But the last two days, everyone realizes that we have a demo in two days and it's not working. So, hey, I don't care if if you were working correctly all the time as a tester. I need you right now to test around the clock. And if I give you something, drop whatever you're doing and test it and give me feedback because we need your testing. We need your testing. So Agile has not taken that away. Culture will take that away. Um, we need to understand, first of all, that, yes, we are part of a team. But we need to understand also that we are responsible and as responsible people, then we have our own responsibilities at that. And one of them is, again, if you're not going to be able to release the product because it's not stable enough, don't go ahead and expect your testing team to do miracles that you can't. Um, mm. But it happens. And, and by the way, it's I, I remember feeling even guilty back in my waterfall days and, and saying, hey, uh, yeah, we're trying to make these uh, compromises and those compromises. Even if you're going to be making compromises, remember that a compromise is something that you can still stand behind. It doesn't mean that you're going to be releasing something that you don't feel confident enough. If you think that you need to run more test cases, you will need to run more test cases. And if uh, we will want to take a risk, your responsibility then becomes to explain the risk. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that the risk actually is taken together. You're not in charge of the clock. Uh, no one is. But you are in charge of understanding what might be the cost if we disregard responsibility because of the clock. Yeah. And I think one of the key things is to understand why, you know, if it keeps happening, if it's a pattern, you know, and we keep having to work evenings and weekends to try and catch up, why is that? That That's not normal if it continuously happens. If it's a one-off, fine, cool, we just contribute, we get stuck in and we do it. But it's understanding, you know, whether or not there's a pattern here and whether or not that process actually needs improving. So, Joel, anything else on working around the clock or should we move on to our next point, which is about missing a bug that went into production? Um, no, let's go into that because that's, that's in, that, 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 that is a big one. Has Meaning, that ever happened to you, though? Have you ever missed anything that's gone into production? Oh, my, many times. Historical many, 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 many times. <laughs> um, and I think that we need to understand that no, we don't. I mean, it, it has happened to me many times, but it never happened to me. And and let me explain. I was never the person writing that code. So it's not my bug that was missed. I was the person who was testing that code. So people had an expectation of me finding that bug. But it was not my bug. It was the bug of the person who wrote the wrong piece of code. Okay, so you need to start by realizing that we provide meaning when you go to the hospital because you're hurt, your, your leg hurts and the x-ray person gives you uh, the result that you have a broken bone. He didn't break your bone. He just showed where the where the breaking was. If a developer writes a bug, it's his bug. On the best case scenario, we will show him where the bug is, but we're not responsible for that bug. Is it clear? <laughs> it, it it is, but I, I'm I'm sat here thinking, isn't that a bit sort of blame culture-ish? 
Um, it's not a blame culture issue if you make it a responsibility culture. And I think that that is a... Um, I, I'm, I'm making this because in many cultures, the blame comes from not finding the bug and people don't realize who actually put it there in the, in the beginning. So if we're going to blame someone, you cannot blame the person for not finding... If You shouldn't blame anyone. You shouldn't start blaming. You should say, hey, yeah, we have an issue here. Let's fix it. And yeah. if we need to change the process, how do we change the process? Because the issue might be in the process as well. Yeah. But if you're, if you're, if you're going to blame someone, don't blame the tester. Yeah. I was going to say, we need to understand, you know, I mean, for me, the, we, we've had, you know, running an engineering team. I mean, you're going to get hundreds of issues that go through, you know, it's particularly when you're trying to catch the market and, you know, pivot in a startup. And the key thing that we always said is, you know what, we're going to miss stuff. It's going to be 100%. We're going to miss it. So we need to mitigate that through, you know, better ops, rollbacks, all that sort of stuff. And fundamentally, DevOps, if, if you want to call it that. But the key that's thing what I was thinking. Is, yeah. I mean, the key thing for us is we fix it fast. You know, that's the key thing. We fix it. We recover. We make sure that the customer is not affected um, or is affected in the least amount uh, possible. So we fix it, roll it back, whatever we've got to do. Then we understand how the bug got missed. And this is where we, we would use a five wise root cause analysis. There's many different ways to do this. And the key thing here is to understand how that bug made it through, particularly if it's a major issue, made it through the process. We want to get to the root cause, and that might be that actually a developer coded it wrong, whatever, or requirements were missing, or, you know, whatever. But actually, the process for us is the most important part. You know, maybe we've asked why five times, and we've understood five reasons why it managed to get through, you know, staging, beta testing, dog fooding, whatever you want to call it, into production. We want to then fix those processes. And that's how we've tried to avoid that sort of blame culture of, you know, developer tester. Because, you know, the premise we had when going into it, building the test team, was we're going to miss stuff. So how can we make sure the customer's not impacted too badly by that? And, and you know what? We also need to understand that, let me take it to the other side as well. Yes, you have a testing team in order to basically find stuff. But you're... If you're expecting your testing team to find it by share lock, then you're doing a bad job. And if you want your testing team to find it by process testing and good testing, then give them enough time and resources in order to do it. Absolutely. Now, I have, uh, having said that, yes, I've released terrible bugs. And I have a rule with my team because I don't expect them not to release terrible bugs. You can release a terrible bug once. I will excuse you for doing it twice. But if you release the same bug three times, that means yeah. that you, you're not here because you're not learning from your mistakes. So as you said, the five whys, I do it internally as well. I don't let my testers off the hook. We look into the bugs that were out. Should have we found them, those ex uh, escaping defects? Yes. So let's change the process to make sure that we do it. Oh, yes, we should always test IE11. We know that it doesn't behave like Chrome. Mm -hmm. So I expect people to learn from those mistakes. Or... Um, Yes, it's uh, these areas are data dependent, so we shouldn't test them with no data. I, I I will let you have that fault once or twice, but not more than that, because yeah. that means that you're not learning from your mistakes. So, again, take it from the responsible way. You will do it. Just make sure that you learn from it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sounds good. All right. So moving on, we're still frustrated, but now we're frustrated about feeling that we're actually the gatekeeper, that we're actually standing in the way of a bad product from being released. And you know what, I've had this before, you, you stand up and go, this is just not good enough to go out. It's it's really poor. There's all these different issues and you get criticized for that. Has that ever happened to you? 
Yeah, I remember actually being in more than one meeting where everyone was saying, we need to release, we need to release, we need to release. And I was the sole person saying, no, we haven't tested this. No, we haven't tested that. No, we haven't tested this. And these bugs are very, very hard. And um, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped quite early, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, and the reason I'm not doing it anymore is because I'm trying to understand that as a manager, you wear multiple hats at multiple times. Um, first of all, uh, when I'm sitting on my management meetings, I need to understand that I'm wearing a business hat. And the business hat is that hat that says we're running a business. The business will make risks. At the end of the day, it's basically that balance between how much risk do I want to take and how much revenue I want to generate. So yeah. it, that that basically, it's a complicated um, uh, it's a complicated way of looking at it, but it's it's like the real world way of looking at it. And I also understand that I will be wrong, and if the whole room thinks that I'm wrong, I'm going to assume that I, I have. Again, if you're the smartest person in the room, look for a better room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always make sure not to be the smartest person in the room. And if so, there are people who I think are smarter than me, or at least smart as I am, and they're telling me, "Hey, I think that you're wrong." I'm going to take their word for it, unless I'm I'm completely sure, and I'm going to convince them. Um, but if, if that doesn't work, then yeah, assume that you're part of a team and you're going to, you're going to take that risk as, as being part of the team. And again, you're not the gatekeeper. You should be at the best of times, the person who's showing the risks, but there's no gate to keep. There's a decision to make. Yeah. And like you say, you know, as a manager, there's all sorts of other pressures, you know, customers, commercials, stakeholders, market, you know, there's all sorts of other stuff that happens that, you know, feeds into that decision and that. That insight, that data, most testers, we we don't have it, you know. I think only when you become a manager do you see the other side and go, actually, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> There's some very hard decisions to make here. So, cool, good. So, hopefully we've covered the gatekeeper there. Um, but, you know, what? T- quick question there, Joel. When you were getting criticized for it, what did you do? I mean, you said you stopped doing it. I, I did the same thing, but it wasn't until I'd been criticized quite a number of times did that change the way that you sort of approach testing? Was that sort of the turning moment? Um, or did you? No, keep... it it was it was the turning moment of how I approach management. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I haven't changed the way that I approach testing. I think that I changed the way I approach testing when I heard my first lecture by James Bach, and he explained to me that testing it's about thinking all the time. And making sure that whenever you get a result, any result you add it into your um, into the inputs that you have, and you change the path that you're going to be taking. Basically, explain exploratory testing to me for the first time. Yeah. That's when I changed my my testing hat, and that's when I started having a notebook whenever I do testing because I need to write down other ideas, and and that's how it changed testing. But it changed management in the sense that it changed the reason why we test. That's when I stopped looking for bugs and I started looking for information about the status of the version and the product. And the value. And, and yeah. yeah. So you, you you do the same kind of test cases, but you look at the aggregations more than at the actual points. Mm. Yeah, I was saying, you know, I started looking at the, the sort of value. Is this adding value or am I just finding stuff and expecting everything to get fixed? Yeah, um, and by the way, it, it also helps because that's the time when you start looking at your testing every day and say hey we need to concentrate in this area because we don't have enough points in order to give a good rating instead of saying oh we have been finding a lot of bugs in here let's continue digging for them 
Yeah, absolutely. So I just should point out to the audience, if you can hear lots of banging and shouting going on at, at my end, it's because my kids are doing the Joe Wicks live PE at nine o'clock. Um, I can hear it. I hope you can't on the on the podcast. But anyway, moving on. Uh, by, by the way, weekend. And if you're not from the UK, that's kind of a program where they do exercises at 9 a.m. every day uh, because Rob forgets that we're not all British. It's on YouTube. In- it's, it's international, mate. It's everywhere. I mean, you just shout outs to every single country uh, on the planet. So it's it's a very national, international phenomenon at the moment. So if okay. you're not doing it at 9 o'clock YouTube, Joe Wicks is, is pretty good. Anyway, 9 o'clock on, so- UK time, guys. <laughs> right now it's 11 15 a.m where i am recording but who cares <laughs> okay so we're still frustrated but now <clears throat> excuse me we're frustrated about working with teams where actually their processes aren't working and you know what it's having an impact on us but should we be talking to other teams if their processes is failing and it's affecting us should that be something we do um let me ask you the other question how can you fix it if not well, to be fair, I know lots of people that would just sit there and deal with it um, rather than try and fix it because it's not in their job description. That, that's I've heard that a number of times. Um, yeah, uh, we call those unemployed people. <laughs> Meaning, let, let's, let's put it like this. Again, if you're only caring for yourself, I guess that you're, I really hope that you're on a deserted island. Because any other place where you are, you're going to end up losing your job or your company is going to end up letting you go. Um, we are part of an ecosystem and we need to make sure, first of all, I, I see that as basically circles of influence. Yeah. My first circle of influence is myself. So I need to make sure that I do a good job. My second circle of influence is going to be my regular team. So I want them to do a good job. But I need to continue expanding into those circles of influence all the way into my... Um, uh, people who actually uh, provide me stuff, let's say my uh, contractors, and all the way to my customers. Hmm. Okay, and and I I do see that as a circle of influence. Obviously, the the farther apart the circle of influence, the less influence you will have in that circle. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to make sure that my the, the teams next to me don't work better. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it helps sense? everybody. Yeah, absolutely, it helps everybody. I've always yeah wider awareness is what I call it. And there's people outside in that sort of third, fourth tiers of influence that you want to be trying to bring into those first and second um, through good relationships, working with them, etc. Um, that's entirely but, but possible. Here it becomes a political game. And here it's when it becomes really, really hard. Because if up to now you were talking with people who everyone knew where you're coming from and where you're aligned, when you start talking with other teams, people will be sometimes curious, if not cautious, why are you doing that? Uh, people will have second guesses about your real intentions. Meaning, oh, are you coming here because you want to take over my team? Are you asking me to do that because you don't want to do it yourself? Um, what meaning? You need to be very clear and very uh, transparent into why you're doing it. And you also, if you're going to give criticism, you need to accept criticism as well. Hmm. Okay? I would always In encourage you not to give criticism until you've built a fairly reasonable relationship with somebody. <laughs> Um, that's the best way to set it off on the wrong on the wrong foot. But yeah, we've got to be able to accept it. So you know, let's say we're, we're working with a, a team that are providing us uh, features or re- let's say requirements. Maybe it's the product team. And um, how can we help them improve? I mean, what what do we do? You know, do we just take a list of issues to them? W- would that work? And ask them to do better. Um, yeah, send them a telegram. I think that would work very very well. <laughs> 
What do you think, man? You know what? Man, you're you're the know. social. Uh, among both of us, you're the more social person. Yeah. What do you recommend? So, the, the, okay. So, the, the first thing is, is we need to get the evidence, the information. You know, like you said, you, you mentioned this earlier. It's about going to them with, you know, absolute clarity over what you're trying to do. You're not trying to take over their role. You're not trying to, you know, um, take over their team. You're not trying to do them out of a job or, or whatever. And, and actually, let's face it, almost everything you do in business is actually politics. It's all about relationships. So we need to build a relationship. And, and the key thing is, is to provide evidence of where those processes are failing. And I always I always say this is a bit of an off-the-cuff sort of cliche, really, in a sense. But I've never met an executive or a switched-on manager of another team who doesn't respond to two very sort of simple premises. One is that if we make these improvements, we will make more money, as in, you know, we'll be able to ship stuff quicker, it'll be better quality, whatever, there'll be a value add to it. Or if we make these improvements, we'll actually stop losing money, as in we won't have as many failures, we won't lose as many customers. When you catch it in those two terms, I've never had a problem in approaching anybody from a different team or department. Man, you're such a capitalist. I know. Oh, God. But ultimately, that's how their people are often measured and incentivized in a business, you know? Sales, we need to make more money. You know, ops, we need to keep the lights on. So I've never found anyone that ever objected to that if the things you're presenting to them are couched in a, in a sort of positive sense with evidence, not just your opinion of what it does. Because what we don't often see when we're speaking with other teams and other departments is actually what problems they've got, what dimensions they're trying to juggle, you know, what kind of incentives and goals they've been given. We don't always see that certainly in a larger organization. So the key thing is not to go with the problems and say, fix this, do this, do this, but explain potential ways you can collaborate and solutions that will help us do better or stop doing worse, if that makes sense. And and I will add something to it. And, and I, I agree with that. If you explain it in the sense of value, meaning this is why overall value will come up, it helps. It also helps if you explain that you're not only asking them to change something, given the fact that it's an interaction, you're also going to change something in your side 100%. and you're going to try to, to bridge it in the middle. Okay, so that actually helps a lot. And if you say, hey, we have this issue right now. What I'm suggesting is that from my side, I will do ABC and from your side, you will do one, two, three. And that will actually make it better. And when you show that you're not only asking them to do something, you're also suggesting that you do something yourself and you're taking part of that responsibility, that actually helps quite a lot. Yeah, and I always encourage brand new managers uh, when you're brand new into a business, so actually anybody, it doesn't have to be managers at all, is to work out where your work goes to, as in who consumes your work after. It might be ops, it might be directly to the customer. And find out where your work comes from and to go and meet the people who are running those departments or teams and ask them what you could do better and what problems there are. And that's a great way to start a relationship by saying, you know what, we haven't got it nailed. Uh, what can we do to make the world better? Find that a great relationship start from a new organization. All right, cool. Joel, we're up on time. Yep. Are we still frustrated? I'm sure there's loads more frustrations. Oh, I'm I'm a lot less, but I'm a lot less because, first of all, I got a thicker skin. Second of all, um, I learned to laugh at myself quite a lot. Uh, and I think the third, third of all, I, and I mentioned this before, I have a very good sense of my, of my, the value that I'm providing to the organization. And I think that a bigger, a big part of my frustration, at least was with that insecurity of what value am I providing as a tester versus the, the value that someone else was bringing. So if, if I need to tell a junior Joel how to change, 
it would be by explaining the value that he's bringing to the organization. Yeah, but yes, good. I'm a lot less frustrating now. Yeah, what I'd say to a junior, Rob, I'd say sort your life out for one thing, because I spent a lot of time wasting many, many years, but also build relationships. I mean, that's the key to getting anything done in business is good relationships. All right, cool. Joel, another one in the bag? All good? Another one in the bag. Guys, if you have topics, let us know. If you like what you did, or even if you didn't, but you like us, go ahead and give us a good review. And uh, we'll be back with a new chapter. Talk to you later. See you later, everyone. Bye.